Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the play Jack Kerouac, End of the Road, looks at the Beat Generation writer's life and death in Florida. You know, these artists that burn out so quickly, there's a genius. I don't know, there's a genius behind their work. We'll discuss Florida military installations, but it really wasn't until the 20th century that the United States started to realize the potential of Florida as a military training site. And we'll talk about Jim Morrison of The Doors. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. God only knows how much I love America. Going from one side to the other. I traveled two lane, four lane, dirt. Steel ribbons spiked to the ground. Boxcars, buses. Flatbeds, trucks, and trailers. The road is a passport in your mind, imprinted with every person you meet, every step you turn. I marked my trail with cigarette butts and candy wrappers. I shared my stories with housewives, bums, businessmen, migrant farmers who spoke only broken English. Everyone I met was either going to or running away from something. I saw ornate churches with spires that pierced the sky. God's living room. I saw towns in the night, lights from their windows, people praying over their food. I watched football, baseball, every step, my step. The road was life, breath, confirmed existence. Actor and playwright David McElroy portrays writer Jack Kerouac in the one-man show Jack Kerouac, End of the Road, accompanied by saxophonist Dylan Hannon. The play has been performed in a variety of venues since it was first staged in 2002, most recently at the Orlando Fringe Festival last May. It can be seen September 14th, 15th, and 16th at Blue Bamboo Center for the Arts in Witter Park. Jack Kerouac was living in Orlando in 1957 when he found out that his novel On the Road was finally being published. He died 12 years later at his home in St. Petersburg. Together with the Allen Ginsberg poem Howl and the William S. Burroughs novel Naked Lunch, Kerouac's On the Road established the rebellious, counterculture, anti-establishment literary movement known as the Beat Generation. David McElroy. He wrote it in three weeks. He uh, got a roll of teletype paper and he just kind of just really didn't sleep. He, as you know, he's an alcoholic and he, and he did a lot of Benzedrine, which is like Woods is an upper. And, uh, and it just, he just wrote all the way. He never had any punctuation. I don't know if you've seen the roll or not, but it's just like, it was amazing. And he did it in three weeks. And then he went back and edited it, of course. And you can see on the roll where he's actually marked it out. and. But it was just the fact that he could do that, and it was just flew, flew out of him. It was amazing to me. So, In the play, we have a line from Capote, actually, who criticized him quite harshly because of his, his style of writing. 
Steve Rowell is co-author of the play Jack Kerouac, End of the Road. He wrote almost non-stop streaming type style, whereas Capote was more of a stop and start writer like many of the writers were. Stop, you think about what you're going to write, then you write it, then you stop and you think about what you're going to write, and then you write it. Kerouac was just, you know, going 90 miles an hour all the time. While the book On the Road has had a profound effect on generations of readers, that novel and the work of the other beat writers has not been universally embraced. Truman Capote famously criticized On the Road, saying that it was typing, not writing. Bob Keeling is author of the book Kerouac in Florida, Where the Road Ends. Lawrence Ferlinghetti, the great poet who was the poet laureate of the United States when he published Hal, was thrown in prison for um, obscenity. So these guys were trailblazers. and I mean, they were talking about a countercultural lifestyle at a time of McCarthyism, um, at a time of communist paranoia. So these guys really stuck their neck out for what they believed in. And it wasn't just guys for that matter. Um, young writers like Joyce Johnson with her wonderful book, uh, Minor Characters, Anne Douglas. Um, so this was really a movement throughout the United States. And they did set the groundwork for the counterculture and the hippies, for better or worse. And um, they were trailblazers. And I think um, there, was a, there was a quote from Ferlinghetti who talked about, you know, we live in a freer, more open, United States because of the beats. The play Jack Kerouac, End of the Road, was first produced in 2002 at Chapters Bookstore in the same Orlando neighborhood where Kerouac was his most productive. Playwrights David McElroy and Steve Rowell. I worked with uh, Marty Cummins uh, at uh, Chapters in the old College Park and uh, he was on the Kerouac board at the time and we were talking about it and and I thought, oh, that'd be kind of an interesting thing to try to, because I do one-man shows. I do one-man Christmas Carol and different, different other shows. And I thought it'd be interesting to, to uh, maybe explore his life. And my friend Steve, who I wrote it with, happened to be at a performance of my one-man Christmas Carol when Marty was talking to me about it. And he said, why don't we write it together? And we'd never done anything together. So we, we, we started back and forth. Uh, he would write a chunk and I would write a chunk and then I'd start putting things together. And uh, it just turned out to be uh, kind of a really cool uh, way to do it. And that's what we started in 2002, and Marty uh, was the first one to produce it. So, In the play, we deal quite a bit with his family, with his sister, his brother who died very young. He was very devoted to his brother. So his family life affected a lot of the things he wrote in the way that he wrote. So uh, it's very important to add that aspect in when you're considering a character for a play. You don't want him to be one-dimensional and live only in the works that he's created, but you want to go deeper into his soul so you can make sure that you have an accurate portrayal on the, uh, on the stage of the guy. Laurel Clark is directing the new production of Jack Kerouac, End of the Road. It's fun working with David because he's not doing an, um, it's not an impersonation of Jack Kerouac, it's an interpretation. And that's really, in, in weaving the saxophonist into the pieces has been really fascinating. I've only done a couple musicals, but the music aspect of it is also exciting because we get to insert the sound into the haikus. And it's been a really fascinating piece to work with. I've studied Buddhism. I've written my own haikus. Listen to this, man. Listen to this. In the darkness, I notice a TV set. I watch it anyway. Feet pound the pavement. 
flower on the sidewalk ignores them. On the wall, a picture of a shipwreck hangs crookedly. A black boy eating vanilla ice cream smiles. Far out, man. The Beat Generation writers, including Jack Kerouac, are most often associated with New York and San Francisco, but as Bob Keeling explains, Kerouac has significant ties to Florida. His sister and brother-in-law came here in 1956. Uh, his brother-in-law wanted to try and um, get work in the burgeoning space industry, and they had Jack's mom's only grandchild with them. They were the only real nuclear family in Kerouac's family. So where his sister went, where his mother went, Kerouac would often follow, coming in off the road, dead tired, needing a place to crash, maybe get some work done. So that's what brought him to Orlando in 1956. Jack Kerouac spent his most productive years in Orlando. Bob Keeling was instrumental in having Kerouac's Orlando home preserved as an historic site. He did a great deal of work while he was living in Orlando. He did the final edits to his seminal novel of the 20th century, On the Road. But then once he saw success with that, he comes back to Orlando basically to get out of the glare of the spotlight of everybody wanting interviews and wanting to talk with the newly crowned bard of the beat generation. So Orlando becomes his refuge. And during the next four or five months at the end of 1957 in the little back porch apartment in Orlando, this is really his last prolific period. He writes dozens of letters to people like Marlon Brando, urging him to do the film version of On the Road. And in fact, he ends the letter with a great sign off. He says, I wanna hear from you, Marlon, put up your dukes and write. And there was a plan for Brando to do On the Road, but unfortunately Kerouac's agent held out for too much money and the deal never got done. But beyond the letters, beyond the poems, he wrote his follow-up book, Dharma Bums, in 11 frenetic days and nights in that college park house uh, in November and December of 1957. Um, so not only did he live in Central Florida, he did some of the greatest work of his career here, and that's certainly worth commemorating and celebrating. Actor and playwright David McElroy. You know, these artists that burn out so, so quickly, um, there's a genius. I don't know, there's a genius behind their work. And uh, I've read almost everything he's written, and it's just like, I almost feel my heart beating, you know, real fast when he, when he beatitude, maybe that's what it is, you know? Um, it's just something that's, if you, if you read his words, you, you'll, you'll get it. I don't know. Uh, I've, I've given on the road to several people, and they went, oh my God, this is wonderful, you know? And, and then, then it, if you look at all of it, I think he wrote like, Oh, I think he wrote like 20,000 different things. You know, he had, he had reams and reams of notebooks and he had haikus and poetry and he even drew and did paintings. I mean, it's just amazing. And he died at 47. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's pretty good, I think. By the time Jack Kerouac was promoting On the Road in the late 1950s, he was no longer the carefree young man depicted in the novel, traveling across the country, taking drugs, drinking heavily, and listening to jazz.
Playwright Steve Rao. Yeah, I think that was a big conflict. I think On the Road itself was a big conflict for him because it was written in such a short amount of time. It was written almost as a, as a live stream of consciousness. And when it was finished, it was done, then it was sealed, and it was turned off. Then he went on to live his life the rest of the way he lived it, yet everyone kept coming back to that because it was so iconic because of what it represented to every, every generation that came afterwards that he kind of got judged by that. And I think he would have liked to have been seen as something other than that person that was in that book. Director Laurel Clark. Whenever you have a, a writer that's as prolific as he was, there's so much in his writing that you can discover. And I, I hate to see writers like him just fall by the wayside because they're just as relevant today. And he is very much just as relevant. And so I, I'm excited that, that um, a lot of people will be just discovering him. And we're hoping that people will come see the show. If they haven't read any of his books, they'll go get one, you know. And, uh, and if they are a big fan, that they'll go, wow, they really did a good job representing him and his life. That's what I'm hoping for. The one-man show, Jack Kerouac, End of the Road, has been performed by David McElroy in a variety of venues since 2002. It can be seen at Blue Bamboo Center for the Arts in Witter Park, September 14th, 15th, and 16th. That's the way it was. In the early days when the streets were ours and our talent was brash and unbending, I roamed the streets of New York and San Francisco with poets and bums. Some of them were my friends. Gregory Corso and Allen Ginsberg. We're like the same person then, like a beast walking on the same two legs, walking the dingy streets in the darkness, but always watching for the light, the light of the street lamp, the warm glow of the morning sun as it crept up over the buildings. Alan was the brain of the beast, analytical, cold, unfeeling bastard. Gregory was a heart, loving, caring, beating this way and that. And me, I was the soul. Curious, looking for meaning in everything and everyone. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, watch archived episodes of our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, Florida has a long history of hosting military installations. Yeah, that's right, Ben. Going all the way back to the 16th century, really with the founding of Florida and the founding of St. Augustine in 1565, it was really for military purposes and for most of the early Spanish occupation of Florida. 
Florida was really a military outpost. It was a, a, a garrison site for soldiers. It was of strategic importance to hold on to the peninsula more than a, uh, a colony that the people really wanted to come to. I mean, the weather was difficult. You couldn't force people to immigrate here, but you could force soldiers to come to Florida. And that's generally what happened, at least during the early Spanish years. During the British period, it was really the same situation. They tried to incentivize settlers, but uh, oftentimes the interior of Florida and along the Gulf Coast and the east coast of Florida were resigned for really military purposes. They would repurpose the same sites over and over again. A lot of the old Spanish infrastructure, much of which still exists today, was reused time and time again by the Spanish, the British, and later by the Americans when they came in in the 19th century. But it really wasn't until the 20th century that the United States started to realize the potential of Florida as a, as a military training site more than, uh, more than anything else. And that really has to do with the weather. The same reason that people would move here, it was warm year-round, it made Florida a great site for training bases and training installations because you didn't have to deal with the weather, uh, of course. So during the uh, uh, really beginning with the, the Spanish-American War, late 19th century, right on the turn of the 20th century, the First World War was probably the largest buildup up to that point. There were a couple of large army bases built in Florida. One of the largest was called Camp Joseph E. Johnston. It was just outside of Jacksonville. Uh, and there were about 40,000 troops uh, stationed there at one point. Even though the, the U.S. was only in the war for, for about a year, they still mobilized tens of thousands of troops, and, and many of whom came through Florida. And then a few decades later, during the Second World War, we had about 200 military installations either established or expanded upon during the period that the U.S. was involved in, in the conflict. A massive, massive mobilization of troops. And a lot of that infrastructure survived well into the 20th century. So a lot of those installations grew into what would become Air Force bases and naval stations and, and things like that. And they still exist today. Now, the Florida Historical Society Archive recently received a donation of artifacts and documents from various military installations around the state. What are some of the items you have here? What we're looking at is a wonderful overview of that 20th century military occupation. We have kind of a an interesting grouping of, of materials. This was a, a private collection, someone who was interested really in just military installations and, and the presence of the military in Florida, mostly during the 20th century. What we're looking at here are these yearbooks. These are, these are essentially annuals. So when a class came through one of these training bases or these training sites, generally they were photographed, they were compiled into these books, and you, know, you could send it home sort of thing. What we're looking at here, this is the earliest. It's called The Rookie. It's from Fort Barrancas uh, outside of Pensacola in 1927. And this shows the Florida National Guard. So this is after the First World War. So you kind of had the, the military was winding down at that point. But you still had to have some kind of home guard, some kind of uh, a group that was defending the, the homeland, if you will, the state of Florida. So this is a, a really great look at some of the uh, National Guard soldiers, many of whom were First World War veterans who stayed in the military, were part of the National Guard, the militia services. We also have some newsletters. This is a newsletter from MacDill Air Force Base, 1945. So again, during the Second World War, we have another one called the Avenger from the U.S. Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale, dated 1945. We have some other yearbooks from the Second World War. This is from Tyndall Air Force Base. This was a flexible gunnery school. So everybody that went through that training, they were photographed in, in these books. And what's kind of interesting and, and difficult to think about, but a lot of these young men, of course, didn't make it back from the war. Uh, and they may be immortalized in these, in these yearbooks in these photographs. And then we have some more contemporary one. Here's uh, Tyndall Air Force Base in the 1980s. So this is one of those installations that existed into the latter part of the 20th century. And it's kind of the same thing, information about
about the site, and it also talks about how it fits into the broader Bay County community. So now you see kind of an effort to, to assimilate these bases because they, they do become a part of the civilian background. In fact, going back to the Second World War, we talked about some of the Army bases. Camp Landing was one of the largest in Florida, and they had about 22,000 civilian workers who came into Florida just doing the logistical work to try and make a training base like that work. So there's a big impact on Florida's history. One more thing I want to point out, too, we have some original photographs. Now, these photographs actually date back to the late 19th century, 1896, 1897, and they feature Fort Barrancas right outside of, of Pensacola, and they were taken by uh, U.S. Army soldiers who were stationed there uh, during the buildup to the, the Spanish-American War, and they're really very interesting. These are personal photographs, so these are not like official printings. This is a soldier who had a camera who was walking around trying to chronicle their life, their camp life. In fact, on the, on the reverse of one of these photographs, it says here that the there's a giant pile of wood, and it says chopping wood pile. This is the, the ultimate time killer for a, an Army soldier in the 19th century. So a uh, really great snapshot of the experiences of these service members who came to Florida to train. Now, of course, today, military installations remain active in Florida, right? Yeah, that's right. And I talked about some of the more contemporary yearbooks and, and annuals that we have. We have several that go all the way up into the, the 1990s. These air bases have expanded. The Army bases, the naval stations, they've all evolved over time. Of course, the mission has evolved over time. But again, Florida's uh, weather still attracts people to Florida's coastal regions and the interior. And it still remains kind of a great site for a lot of these military installations. Well, Ben, a lot of really fascinating documents and photographs here. Thanks. Sure, Ben. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Many popular musicians grew up in Florida, including Ray Charles, the Allman Brothers, and Tom Petty. Holly Baker is a graduate student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida and points out that Jim Morrison of the Doors was also from Florida. Riders on the storm Riders on the storm into this house we're born Into this world we're thrown Like a dog without a bone And actor out alone Riders on the storm While he is often associated with California, legendary rock musician Jim Morrison was born in Melbourne, Florida in 1943. His father, Rear Navy Admiral George Stephen Morris, was raised in Leesburg, Florida, and worked at Naval Air Station Melbourne during Jim Morrison's childhood. Between 1962 and 1964, Jim Morrison attended Florida State University in Tallahassee, where he studied psychology and film. I recently sat down with memorabilia historian of hard rock, Jeff Nolan, who talked with me about musician Jim Morrison, his ties to Florida, and his musical legacy. I love those kind of things about Florida. When you find out, oh, you know, Jim Morrison's from Melbourne, of all places. 
nothing wrong with Melbourne. You just don't expect the Lizard King to crawl out of the swamps of Melbourne, but there you have it. Between the Melbourne connection and, of course, the Miami bust, there's a lot of Florida legacy to Jim. In 1965, Jim Morrison moved to California and studied film at UCLA, where he met a graduate student named Ray Manzarek. Along with John Densmore and Robbie Krieger, they formed the rock band The Doors. Can you name a band that sounds like The Doors other than The Doors? I can't. Nobody sounds like The Doors. Nobody really even tried because it was singular. And that only works with somebody like Jim out front. Otherwise, it's just acid circus music with that frantic Ray Manzarek kind of key thing. Everything sounded like a sideways calliope. And how do you even make that work? Well, Jim was the fulcrum of the whole thing. It works only if you have Morrison. Jim Morrison also had a scandalous tie to Florida, the infamous Miami incident. In 1969, Jim Morrison was charged with profanity and indecent exposure at a concert in Miami. If you look at the short life and really short career of Jim Morrison, the Miami incident is a blip on the radar and completely incidental. Rockstar gets on stage, is hated by the cops, and they bust him. You know where it was good? It was good for building the Jim Morrison mythology. But the idea, anybody who listens to The Doors has followed them, paid attention to them, it's not even in character. They really couldn't get booked the same after that, and it effectively drove a wedge into the band. I mean, that's tragic. The Miami incident may or may not have even happened, but it was the beginning of the end of The Doors. In 1971, Jim Morrison died of heart failure in Paris, France at the age of 27. In 2010, Jim Morrison was posthumously pardoned by Florida Governor Charlie Crist for the Miami incident. Jeff Nolan reflects on the musical legacy of Jim Morrison. What I think of Jim Morrison is really the archetype frontman of popular music, not even just rock and roll. There are certain people who fronted rock and roll bands historically that are templates, and Jim is one of them. That, I think, is his big legacy. Also, he did something to popular music that is not wildly different than what Bob Dylan did to popular music. I think that Jim took that Dylan idea of actual poetry and wordplay in popular music to really make art, as opposed to just disposable radio product that sang about teen love. Because if you think about it before Dylan, that's pretty much all it was. Morrison took that to a very far degree, and that's an impressive legacy. Even to this day, the mythology is just as fun as the music. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's all part of the art. For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker, a public history graduate student at the University of Central Florida. Speaking of musicians from Florida, don't miss the third annual Florida Frontiers Festival on Saturday, October 20th on the grounds of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. The sacred steel gospel funk band, The Lee Boys, will perform. The Miami-based band has played the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, the Chicago Blues Festival, Bonnaroo, and now the Florida Frontiers Festival. Florida favorite Bill Sauce Boss Wharton will be playing and cooking gumbo live on stage. Other performers include Florida Heritage musician Bob Lusk, singer-songwriter Chris Call, and acoustic rocker Mike Garcia. In addition to music, the event includes artists, an antique car show, food vendors, and free admission to the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. 
That's the third annual Florida Frontiers Festival, Saturday, October 20th, on the grounds of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. Advanced tickets are just $15. Just go to myfloridahistory.org and click on the Florida Frontiers Festival logo in the center of the webpage. That's myfloridahistory.org. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. We hope you'll join us right here again next week. Until then, you can join the conversation on Facebook and visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can also listen to the program as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Robert Casanello, and Holly Baker. Our web extras are designed by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.